Well, good morning, and again, welcome, everybody, to Hawaii Kai Church. It's so good to see all of you here uh, to worship with us, to worship our Lord. Uh, please open your Bibles uh, to Psalm 73, uh, which if you're using uh, the church Bibles that are under the seats in front of you, that starts on page 485, and then it runs through page 486. Again, that's Psalm 73 starting on page 485 in the Church Bibles. Now, as you're turning there, uh, let me give you uh, just the basic premise of this psalm. Uh, Simply put, God is good. He is good to his people, to those who love him, to those who are devoted to him with all their hearts. God is good. But as we're going to see in this psalm, sometimes even God's people can be tempted to believe otherwise. We're tempted to question God's goodness to us because sometimes we see and we experience things in this fallen world that just don't make sense. Sin, wickedness, injustice, pain, futility, heartache, we don't understand why and how God allows and even uses evil in our lives or in this world. And so we're tempted to question him, to question his goodness. Do you ever feel this temptation? Well, that's what we're going to look at in this psalm today. Let me read it to you now. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Would you bow your heads with me as we open in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for, again, the opportunity that you give to us to hear from you. And God, that is what I pray, that, Lord, it would be your word by your spirit moving in and through your people to help us, God, to get a better picture of who you are, to understand you better, to understand ourselves better in light of you, and to see you, God, at work in this world. Help us, Lord, to behold you, our God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do you ever find yourself in Asaph's position? Asaph, the writer of this psalm, although he knew his God, he was on the verge of falling over into a chasm of unbelief because he could not understand why the wicked always seem to prosper and why God's people, those who are pure in heart, always seem to suffer. Asaph was envious of the good life. He was jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. And in his envy and jealous, he almost drifted away from God. Now, we're all susceptible to stumbling in our faith. Whenever we encounter painful life questions, when we don't understand what and why God is doing what he is doing, that is when we begin to question him, to question his goodness And when our questions don't receive satisfactory answers, we become dissatisfied with God and we begin to turn away from him and begin to doubt him. Now, before we go any further, I think it's very important for us to know who was this man Asaph because I think that gives us a better understanding of this psalm. Well, Scripture tells us that Asaph was a skilled musician who wrote several of the psalms, including what many believe, Psalm 73. He was a Levite a contemporary of King David, assigned by the king as a worship leader in the tabernacle. He was a highly regarded poet-songwriter whose songs were still being used in the worship of God hundreds of years later after his passing. In 2 Chronicles 29, we read about King Hezekiah, who reigned over Judah some 240 years after King David. We read this in verse 30. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. So Asaph was a great musician who knew and loved and worshipped his God. And I share this because I want you to take heed that this psalm shows us that even the most ardent, sensitive, and worshipful believer can still stumble in his or her faith. But if you are a believer, a faith-filled follower of Jesus Christ, this psalm also gives us insight into what helps us to stand firm. We're going to see in this psalm a beautiful transformation of Asaph's heart from an envious, jealous heart that cries out and nearly stumbles in faith to a heart that is secure, a heart that is at rest, a heart that takes refuge in his almighty God. And we're going to look at that transformation this morning. Let's start by looking at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure 
in heart. Now again, this psalm begins with this simple but profound truth that God is good to his people. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now the addition of that second clause, to those who are pure in heart, is very important because it states the same thing that Paul the Apostle would later write in Romans chapter 9 when he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, back then, as it still is today, the people of God are defined not by external things such as nationality or being born into a certain family or by following rules and regulations. The people of God are not defined by who they are and what they do on the outside, but they are defined by who they are on the inside. The people of God are those who have pure hearts. Pure, meaning undiluted, undivided, love for, devotion to, and faith in God. And to those who are of a pure heart, the psalm tells us, God is good. God is good to his people. And his people should know this and believe this with all their hearts. But ever since the Garden of Eden, when the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Ever since then, the enemy has been planting seeds of doubt in believers' hearts to question the goodness of God. And this continues to be his strategy even to this day. Why? Because he knows that it works. Make them question God's goodness and you put their faith at risk. And this is what Asaph is dealing with in our psalm today. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph should have known better. He knew God was good to the pure in heart, but as he looked around and as he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he became envious of their riches and their easy lifestyle. But I don't think it was just materialism. I think Asaph was envious mostly of the blessings that seemed to pour down upon them from the very hand of his good God. And he was jealous. Now what exactly was the prosperity that Asaph was so envious of? of? Well, look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You see, in Asaph's observations, the wicked, because of their prosperity and riches, experience no pangs or pains in life whatsoever. Asaph saw them as being free to live a life of ease and comfort, and there's nothing to bind them, for their bodies are well-fed. They are fat and they are sleek. They do whatever they want and whenever they want, and they do this all the way up until the day that they die. They don't experience the troubles of regular people. They're not stricken by any of the misfortunes of the rest of the world. That's what Asaph thought. But is that, is that really true? You know, it's almost as if Asaph was viewing these wicked people through their stories on Instagram or on some other social media platform that only show all the good, the fun, the exciting things in a person's life but totally ignores reality. But isn't that what envy is? And isn't that what envy does? The grass is always greener 
on the other side. And it's the stumbling block of humanity that we always want what we don't have because we always believe that if I just had a little bit more, I could finally be satisfied. I could finally be happy. But you know, as well as I do, that that's a lie. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 5, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is all vanity. It's reported that John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, and at one time the richest man in the world, he was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? To which Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. We never have enough. We're like kids in the candy store with eyes bulging out of our heads, uh, wanting every last bit of candy in that store, even if it makes us sick. And it's this desire for more, for things that we don't have but think that we need that ultimately blinds us to the truth that nothing in this world will ever truly satisfy us except for God. That's the only truth. The goodness of God is what we truly need, whether we know it or not. And Asaph should have known this, but in his jealous, envious state, he's slowly spiraling downward, and all Asaph can see is the prosperity and lavish lifestyle being poured out by his good God onto the wicked, and it's making him sick in his soul. Listen to how he describes the wicked, starting in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Now, time doesn't allow us to go into detail in each one of these descriptions, but Asaph is basically singing in his psalm here. He's singing that these wicked people look at all the blessings that they have received, and rather than thank a good God who has given it to them, they become prideful and arrogant, violent, foolish, oppressive, because they believe that all of these blessings are as a result of their own greatness. And in their pride, they don't care about anyone else besides themselves. And they'll boast to the ends of the earth of their prosperity and even set their mouths against heaven itself. I think you get a sense of Asaph's turmoil. How he could be so tempted to jealousy and be so close to unbelief because these people, they're so evil. And yet they're still so blessed with so much. Why, God? Why? Is God truly good to those who have a pure heart? And it's not just Asaph who's being affected. Look at, with me at verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Well, like Asaph, God's people can fall into temptation to envy and desire the prosperity of the wicked. And as they turn and associate more and more with them, they become increasingly blind like Asaph and actually find no fault in what the wicked are doing. And all the while you can hear the taunting voices of the wicked as, as they set their mouths against heaven. You, uh, you say there's a God? <laughs> if so, 
He sees what we're doing. God knows everything, right? So how can God know? And how can he know all these things and still not do anything about it? Is there knowledge in the Most High? If there is, he doesn't seem to care. In fact, he's the one who's pouring these blessings out on us in the first place. But oh, how wrong the wicked are when they think and speak this way. But poor Asaph, he can't see this yet because he's so blinded by his envy. And so struggling with all these thoughts, he ends up in despair. And it almost causes him to give up and let go of everything that he believes about God. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Basically, Asaph is saying, what have I been good for? All my sacrifice to keep my heart pure, to keep my hands away from evil, all this for nothing. The wicked are the ones who enjoy life most. They're the ones who are always at ease. They keep getting richer and richer. While I, on the other hand, the one who has tried all my life, God, to walk with you, to live my life devoted to you, I'm the one who's stricken all day long. As I see all this injustice in the world, and every morning it's as if I'm being rebuked as I witness the prosperity and the easy lifestyle of the wicked. If that's how it's going to be, then what a waste. All my effort is meaningless. What a waste of time. What a waste of a life. Needless to say, Asaph is at his lowest point. But notice, he's only looking at things from one perspective, his perspective. He sees wicked people who have no desire for God, yet they're prospering. And he's envious of them. He's jealous. He's jealous because he believes he deserves more than them. I deserve to be that happy. I deserve that life of ease. I deserve the bigger house. Not them. They're wicked I'm good. Asaph's focus is all about himself. Yes, there's wickedness. Yes, there's injustice. But that's not the cause of his frustration. Envy and jealousy of what the wicked have and what I don't, that is what plagues him. And that's not uncommon, is it? Asaph needs to get the focus off of himself. But he can't do this because he's too focused on himself. It's like a never-ending downward spiral until something stops him. But even as all of this turmoil is raging on within him, remember, Asaph is the one who knows his God and, yes, even loves his God. And so even though his doubts and his internal anguish are overwhelming, and he's on the brink of turning away from God, he still has a God-ward disposition enough, enough so that he's able to keep his ungodly thoughts to himself. And that's what he does. Look, uh, look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now here we see the beginning of Asaph's transition. He's starting to turn back to the Lord 
from the depths of despair, he's coming back to his senses. And we see this in his concern for the people of God. For it is this concern that keeps his mouth shut. He refuses to discourage and cause God's people to stumble by sharing his ungodly doubts. And I think there's a lesson here for all of us to guard our tongues and to be slow to speak. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk to anyone when we're going through a crisis of faith. Absolutely not. Talk to your pastors. Talk to your elders. That is why we are here. But be careful not to vent all over the children of God, especially your own children. Don't betray them to doubt and faithlessness. Instead, take your focus off of yourself and look to the Lord. Turn to Him. Seek Him with all your heart. In Jeremiah 29, we're told, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need to do when we find that our faith is being challenged and that when we're plagued by doubts. And this is what Asaph finally does as we come to verse 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now this is the turning point of the psalm. You can imagine that there is like a hinge between verse 16 and verse 17 upon which Asaph's entire perspective changes. In verse 16, Asaph tries but fails to understand why the wicked are so blessed and the pure in heart are, are left wanting. It wearies him. It pains him to even think about it. And that's not so surprising, is it? Because when our focus is only on ourselves, viewed from a short-sighted, human, worldly perspective in which all we have and all we are is what is right in front of you, right here in the here and now, when that's all we can see, then of course you come to a, the same gut-wrenching conclusion about life that Asaph did. Get as much as you can. Be as greedy and as wicked in this life as you want because that's all there is, folks. And if that were the case, then Malcolm Forbes is right. He who dies with the most toys wins. And so Asaph has been struggling with this wearisome, painful conclusion until, until, verse 17, until he went into the sanctuary of God then he discerned their end. Entering into the sanctuary stops Asaph's downward spiral. What Asaph could not comprehend through his own myopic human worldly reasoning was finally revealed to him when he went into the sanctuary of God and he could finally see from God's perspective the big picture his eyes were finally taken off of himself and he could discern and see the true end of the wicked. Now the image of Asaph going into the sanctuary of God is that he is entering into the place where Jehovah meets with his people. 
and his people together hear the word of God. They hear the truth of who God is. And based upon the knowledge of that truth, they worship him and through sacrifice pour out their love to him. Brothers and sisters, it is no different from today. This is exactly what we're doing when we come together to worship on a Sunday morning. We're coming to meet together with God, to pray to him, to hear from his word, to teach and admonish one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs, to fellowship with one another around the Lord's table so that we can remember all that Christ has done for us. This is why, this is why it is so important to be in the sanctuary of God. It's so important to be in church. We're not just showing up to fulfill a weekly obligation because this is what we're supposed to do on a Sunday. We are here to meet with God, to meet with one another, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching and to get to know and be reminded week in and week out who this God is in all of his holiness, all of his worthiness, all of his goodness. Because it is only through knowing God that our focus is taken off of ourselves. And we are able to see the world from his perspective and to be reminded like Asaph that this life is not all there is. That he who dies with the most toys does not win. Rather, There is an eternity that awaits in which the pure in heart will enjoy everlasting life while the wicked will be condemned to an everlasting punishment. Whatever vast amounts of wealth and riches the wicked may have in this life, it will end. And rather than envy, there should be only pity. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And so as Asaph enters into the sanctuary of God and meets with him to worship him, he begins to remember all the glorious truths about his God. His eyes are lifted up from this world, taken off of himself, and as his gaze turns heavenward, he comes to his senses and he remembers that God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. And at the same time, he sees the ultimate demise of the wicked. Look at verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. This is a reality check for the wicked. Rather than a a prosperous life of riches, ease, uh, that they experience no trouble, uh, even unto death, the wicked are actually on a slippery slope heading straight to hell. Although they may prosper in this life, ultimately they will fall to ruin and be destroyed in a moment. They will be terrified as they realize that the God against whom they have blasphemed the God that they thought didn't see them or care what they did during this lifetime, this holy God now holds them accountable and he despises their prideful arrogance 
And all their prosperity, all their wealth, all their power, all their life of ease simply dissolves and vanishes like a phantom. To the wicked, God will not be good. And Asaph now understands this. Going into the sanctuary and having the light of God shine down upon them, he begins to understand this. But not only does he see and understand the ultimate sorrowful end of the wicked, he also now sees himself in this light. And the look isn't good. He now sees how foolish he truly was for doubting his God. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In his transformed, renewed, and now correct frame of mind, Asaph can now look back on his previous bitterness with great shame. He realizes how ignorant he was, how short-sighted he was, how he, and how he was viewing the prosperity of the wicked. And his response is, I'm so dumb. I'm like a beast to you, God. And this is how it is and how it should be for any of us when we sin but then come to our senses and repent and come back to God. There should be remorse and regret. But this remorse should not be because we are caught or because there are consequences that now have to be paid for our sin. No, our remorse should come from a deep understanding of how rebellious and how foolish we have been before our good benevolent God. So grievous is our sin against our holy God that we should realize like King David that against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And like Asaph, recognize that I'm not even a man. I'm like a beast before you, God. And I don't ever want to be like that before you again. But... And this is the glorious thing about the goodness of God. This doesn't mean that we remain forever in the doghouse, in the beast house. Yes, there should be genuine remorse and regret over our sin, but this should point us back to the grace and mercy of our God. And this is what we see Asaph experiencing now. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In spite of all his bitterness, in spite of all his ignorance, his being like a brute towards God, Asaph knows that he is still with his God and that God still holds him by the hand. Asaph knows that even through his sin, God can and will use this to guide him and to give him counsel and that he will continue to do this throughout his life, teaching him and lifting him up when he stumbles, holding his hand along the way until finally he will receive a sanctified Asaph to glory. Brothers and sisters, only a good God would do such a thing, turning even our most vile sins into opportunities for growth until he finally receives us back into heaven. Now, we will pay the consequences for our sin. There's no doubt about that. But we can and we should also learn from our mistakes. Do not suffer the terrible cost of sin without receiving some benefit from it. 
When you sin, repent. Confess your sins to God and you will find that he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Turn back to God and learn from your mistakes. Don't lose the valuable lessons that must be learned even when they come through our own sin. And as Asaph contemplates this persevering, long-suffering goodness of God, he comes to this beautiful conclusion. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here, Asaph acknowledges what every heart that longs for God understands and knows very intimately, that there is nothing, either in heaven or on earth, that we desire more than our God himself. What other conclusion can you come to? Hundreds and hundreds of years later, the the Apostle Peter will come to the same conclusion when he says, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. No amount of riches or prosperity or ease of life, no relationship or possession or anything else in this short life can compare to an eternity in heaven. In our Bible reading, I think it was today, Psalm 84, we talked about this in our prayer meeting. It says this, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Asaph, after encountering God in the sanctuary, finally realizes this. And he also knows that eternity is not just an endless drab nothingness, living forever in the clouds, playing a harp as Hollywood sometimes portrays heaven. Rather, Asaph understands that God alone fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. And even though our flesh and our heart may fail, and they will fail, God himself will be the strength and the restorer of our hearts. And he will be our portion forever. In other words, he himself is our internal encouragement and the one who will supply all of our needs throughout eternity. Brothers and sisters, truly God is good to his people. And this is where we need to figuratively take a step out of this psalm for just a moment to complete this beautiful picture of God's goodness. Because as Christians today, we know more about God's goodness and gracious love than Asaph could have ever even dreamed of. For we live post-crucifixion post-resurrection. We live on this side of the cross knowing that this good God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the wicked people that Asaph so despised in his psalm, those wicked people, they're us. They're you. They're me. We are all rebels against our creator. We have all turned away and become corrupt. But in spite of this, in spite of our rebellion against our maker, the goodness of God shines forth through his son, Jesus Christ. 
For God sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay the death penalty that we deserved because of our sin. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He absorbed the holy wrath of God and he died in our place. But then he didn't stay dead, did he? After three days, he rose again from the grave. And in so doing, he defeated death. And he proved that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And so we all must turn to him and rely upon him for the forgiveness of our sins. For everyone who believes, everyone who by the grace of God puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved and truly, truly become those of a pure heart, those to whom God is good. But to those who remain in their rebellion against God, and here we jump back into the final two verses of our psalm, we read in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for those who place their faith in God, those for whom the blood of Christ washes away their sin, we read finally in verse 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Brothers and sisters, it is good to be near God, to make him your refuge, and then to make him known throughout this world. So in closing, come into the sanctuary. Come in every Sunday. Come in and worship. Learn from his word. Fellowship with his people. Pray to him so that we will always remember that truly God is good to his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you are indeed a good God, that we can look to you, Father, as the only thing in this world and in heaven that we have and we need. We thank you that it is because of your goodness that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die a horrible death on a cross so that our sins, our rebellion against you could be forgiven. We are eternally grateful, Lord, and we are thankful for this reminder from Asaph that you truly are indeed a very good God. We love you, we praise you, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.